You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective Podcast. I'm sitting actually on the main stage of my theater. Uh, and today we have a very special guest. You know, over the past eight or so episodes, we've talked to gossip columnists, we've talked to press agents, artistic directors. But this week, finally, we're actually talking to a producer, which makes sense because this is the producer's perspective. Uh, and what a producer I have sitting in front of me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Today, I'm happy to say we're talking to Olivier and Tony Award-winning producer Hal Luftig. Welcome, Hal. Hi, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Hal has been the lead producer on a host of shows like Kinky Boots, which is just a couple doors down from us right now, Evita with Ricky Martin, Catch Me If You Can, Legally Blonde, Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is where I first met him, and a whole host of others. Uh, if you dig deeper into that list of credits, you'll find that Hal is one of the few producers out there to have produced more than one new musical Tony Award winner with Millie and Kinky Boots, and we'll get into the specifics of that in a bit. But I'll tell you, it is not easy to win one of those suckers, and Hal has done it twice. So we're going to start really now with the big, tough, tough questions for Hal. Hal i got to just say, Ken, when you say stuff like that, I look, look over my shoulder and I go, who is he talking about? Like when you said we have a producer, I was like, we do? Where? <laughs> it's the truth, Al. Welcome to your career. It's a good one. It's a career that uh, I know I look up to and I know all my readers do. And um, also what I love about you and uh, all the readers and listeners out there. Um, you just heard what I think the business loves about Hal. He's just a very humble and gracious guy, uh, which is I, why I wanted him as the first producer on the podcast. So tell us how you got started in this crazy business. Well, I uh, started, I knew, I know this is going to sound weird, uh, um, especially I, my, my husband is a psychiatrist and always tells me, as a psychiatrist, this is the weirdest thing. I knew when I was nine years old exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't know it was called producing, but I knew, I can't act. And I can't direct, and trust me, you don't want to hear me sing. Um, and I just, I always, we went to the theater when I was a kid a lot, and I just knew around nine years old, shows, especially musicals, had a lot of moving parts. You know, there was actors and scenery and there were lights, and if you looked in the pit, there was another dozen people doing stuff down there. And I just knew that, uh, just by looking at the playbill, because, you know, my heroes at that time was Manny Eisenberg and, and David Merrick and, you know, and somehow Prince. And so I would see their name and I would figure, I figured out that they must have something to do with putting all of that together. And I just, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, uh, 
you know, make a long story short, when it came time to go to college, my parents basically said, we love that you love the theater. Now go get a real degree. So I, uh, I did, um, and I, I got a, a degree in journalism and, and psychology. I don't know how those two were met, but they were two things that interest me the most. Uh, I got out of school and I worked for uh, Newsday, which is the Long Island newspaper for a couple of years, and I was miserable. I hated it. It's just I didn't want to do it. Um, and I knew I wanted to somehow gravitate to theater. And just around that time, they were re-upping the Columbia uh, program, Masters of Fine Arts and Theater Administration. And, and Jerry Schoenfeld and Bernie Jacobs, may they rest in peace, were one of the you know, founders and supporters and um, uh, uh, Skylar Chapin, who was Ted Chapin's dad, was the dean. And then I applied, um, and I will, I will never forget the story, and I tell this to Ted Chapin so I can tell it to, to here, just our little secret. I had no theater experience, zero, none. And uh, I applied, and at the time, those were the days when they would call you in for an interview, right? So I went in for the interview, and he's looking at my transcript. Remember those, you know, your college transcript? Sure. And he's looking, and it's Skylar Chapin was even taller than Ted Chapin. He was like this enormous like man, tall, thin, regal-looking. Um, and he's looking at my transcript and uh, uh, asking me a few basic questions, like how did I hear the program, where do I live, you know. And then he looked at my transcript like thoroughly and picked his head up and he said, you know, young man, there is not one thing on this transcript that says theater. You know, why do you think we should admit you to, you know, Columbia University? Well, just the way he said it, the thing that came out of my mouth was because no one will work harder or wants it more in this program. And as it came out of my mouth, he stood up and he said, you know, just shook my hand. He said, well, thank you very much for coming in. And I will never forget this. I went home. I kicked myself the whole way home. I lived out still in, in, in Long Island because I was working for Newsday. Basically cried the whole train ride home thinking, what a stupid, stupid, stupid day. You know that, that like a scene out of a cartoon. And uh, about six days later, I got a letter of acceptance. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And um, I always said to the day she passed away that Isabel Stevenson had something to do with it, and she didn't, totally denied it. I think, you know, did you ever go to those, um, those working in the theater seminars? Oh, sure, yeah. sure. This I podcast did. is inspired oh, by that. Oh, my God, sure. I did too. I went to everyone, you know, and they would have it at City College. And she was always, you know, there. And... Um, uh, one day she came up to me as everyone was filing out and said, you know, I don't know you, but I see you here all the time. And I, you know, introduced myself and I said, I don't really work in the theater, but I want to. And, and she said, oh, you know, that's really, that's really great. And I told her that I had applied, I had, did apply to Columbia. And I don't know, Ken, it was like, you know, I look back on it and I think there is not one reason they should have admitted me to that program, really. And he basically stood up and shook my head and said so. But, you know, to the day she passed, oh, we became great friends later, later in life. And I would always say this to her. I said, I would say, Isabel, I know you had something to do with it. And she would look and, dear, I don't know what you're talking about. I just think it's, you know. You're never going to convince me otherwise. <laughs> so that's how I got started in the business. I graduated from the program. I got a job working for an off-Broadway theater company that at the time uh, ran a couple of off-Broadway theaters, the Orpheum and the Men Lane. Um, they unfortunately uh, went out of business. That's all I can say of that. And one of the owners, the co-owners, the investors, uh, called me and said, listen, I live in California, now I own a theater. How would you like to run it for me? And I was like, I'm in, you know, and so it just, that's how it started. 
Um, and then started slowly. I met different people. We did a lot of shows off-Broadway in the Orpheum Theater. We did Charles Bush's Lady in Question, and we did The Night Hank um, Williams Died, and um, Oleana was in the Orpheum Theater when I was there, and Sarah Bernhardt, Without Me, You're Nothing. Um, so a lot of it was a great, fertile time. And I just met a lot of people, Margot Lyon, Rocco Landsman, and slowly but surely we started, I started co-producing, you know, uh, just learning, listening, and yeah. Then I met you on Millie. <laughs> so the learning, listening part is, a, as you were learning, and li- yeah. who were you learning and listening to at the time? Any mentors? Anyone I could, no. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, Marco was a great, Marco Lyon was a great mentor. Um, we, I met her when they, she was producing The Garden of Earth with the Delights, which is um, a Martha Clark's dance piece. Turns out that Martha and, and Margo were cousins. Who knew? So I, I just, that was one person who I just, you know, gravitated to, and she was great. She, you know, would, would talk to me and, you know, and, and teach me, and I would ask questions. Uh, Manny Eisenberg was another one, and if he's listening, he's going to die that I'm saying this, but we did, I got to do Moving Out together, he and I, um, the Billy Joel piece, Twilight Thor piece, and I would always say to him, Manny, I, I can't, you know, believe you, I would, I would look at a playbill and see, you know, I can't believe you here. And he would just, you know, like smack me and go, shut up, you know, things like that. Um, uh, yeah, J- Jerry Schoenfeld, and like I said in the program, Bernie Jacobs, uh, every week as part of that management program, you would go to the Schubert office and they would alternate. One week it would be Bernie, one week it's it with Jerry. And I would like, and they would just like either talk about the business or sometimes Bernie would take a phone call. There's this great story that anyone in that class will tell you. Um, Dream Girls was going to L.A. It was the first stop of its, you know, I guess national tour. And Michael Bennett had decided it was a huge hit, and he wanted to put all these quote-unquote improvements in it. And Bernie was having none. And we sat in his office, the class, while he took a call from Michael Bennett, and you could hear Michael screaming. You know, when someone's talking so loud through the through the uh, the handset, you could hear him screaming at Bernie. And Bernie's scream turning red, his veins are bulging, screaming back at him. You know, this goes on for like 15 minutes. I'm like taking notes. I'm thinking this is going to be on the test, right? Bernie, God love him, puts down the phone. He says, oh, he loves me. I'm like his father. He only does that because he loves me. So, and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking, you know, I'm, I'm remembering this. is the this. business you're getting into, mm-hmm. the dysfunctional yeah. family where everyone but, yells at each right, other and loves, and each, loves other each other. But that's, what, that's the kind of learning and listening I did. And then, you know, I, I did do, you know, I was an associate producer on um, shows like Jelly's Last Jam and The Secret Garden, Michael David and the Dodgers. I mean, they're, they were just, you know, great to... You know, listen and figure out how things happen, and you know uh, who does what and how and when, and um, learning how to to deal with different artistic personalities, um, things like that. And the, what was the first show that you stepped out on your own as a lead producer? What was the first? Millie. It was it Millie. It was Millie. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was the com- yeah. I was the company manager of Thoroughly Modern. Yes, he Millie, was, uh, and w- was lucky enough to. You talk about learning and listening. Man, did I learn and listen from, from oh. you on that show. But that was the first one. That was the first one. And boy, was that trial by error. Let me ask, do you remember when the deluge curtain went down? I do remember. Yes. And that happened to me twice in that theater. Oh, I, You know I love the Needlelanders. I've had two shows in, in the Marquee Theater. Thoroughly Modern Millie and Evita. 
And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but most theaters have a fire curtain. You know, this asbestos curtain that, just for you readers who don't know, uh, when a, if a fire were to break out, this asbestos curtain falls quickly and it stops any flames going from the stage to the audience or the audience to the stage. Well, when the Marquee Theater was built, somebody decided, oh, we don't need a real asbestos curtain. What we'll do is we'll have this pipe that runs along the height of the stage, and should a fire break out, 200 gallon, million gallons of water will come down quickly, like a deluge, hence the name deluge curtain. Well, we do you remember we were in rehearsal for Millie, they were loading in the set, and they have to test all of the, the fire department has to test the water pressure systems. So they came in and somebody forgot to turn the key that says this is only a test, and pushed the button as if there were a fire. So 200 thousand whatever of gross disgusting water that had been sitting in this you know this this I don't know pipe for like 20 years came crashing down and soaked our set and you know we were just by the grace of God we got not a lot of damage fast forward 20 years later Vita the same we have a preview and they come in and they have to somebody was doing some electrical work and they hit one of the sensors and all that water came crashing down again. This time, it all went into the pit, and the the music, the scores, the instruments. You know, with the with Millie, we were just loading in. With Avita, we had already started performances. So you know, there was it looked like the Titanic. Sheet music was floating on this gross puddle, you know, six feet of water in the orchestra pit. Um, and and our musical director, Kristen Blodgett, who was there, because it was the day after preview, so it was still rehearsing, right? She, like, dove in, like, one of the stagehands, like, pulled her out, said, get out of there, there's live electricity in there. And I, you know, finally, when we all got it all worked out, and, you know, the needle ends came down, I looked at Nick Scandellis, who I love, is a friend and, you know, really great friend, and I said, Nick, this is, don't take this personally. I don't think I'm ever playing this theater again. <laughs> And we both just howled because we just knew how, you know, how, like, bizarre it was. They're, but that's, yes, where I met you. They're renovating that theater now. Maybe they're changing that. Curve. I hope so. <laughs> Let's hope they put in a real asbestos curve. Bring back asbestos, Bring back asbestos, people. Yeah, yeah. So, as a producer, what do you know, I've talked to a bunch of people throughout my career about how everyone is a little bit different. How do you spend most of your day? Is it a third marketing, a quarter uh, development? How do you split up? That's a really good question. You know, I one of the reasons why I love what I do, what I do, is because when you wake up in the morning, you have no idea. You just really, you know, you can have a set plan and I have a schedule and I'll have a lunch meeting or a marketing meeting or this. But then the phone rings, and in a nanosecond, your whole day, sometimes your whole week, sometimes your whole world gets turned around. And, you know, there are days, I'm not going to lie, that I, like, hit my hand to my head and go, for this I went to college. This is, like, I'm deal I'm actually dealing with this. Um, but then there are days that I think, isn't this cool? This is, like, I'm challenged by something. I have to figure something out, or something is working or not working, or... You know, it's an interesting problem, or I'm talking to an interesting creative person, and I'm like, wow! Um, so I, I don't really know how to divvy that up. I mean, with something like Kinky Boots, which you know, you're a producer of too, um, we are now in the place where we have lots of different productions going out. You know, we have the tour, which I have to pay attention to. We have Broadway, which, you know, obviously we're all paying attention to. We have Toronto, which opens at the end of June. So today, before I came here, a lot of the discussion was uh, the set building. And because that set is going to then travel to Australia, 
after we're done with Toronto. So a lot of that was, okay, if we build it this way, it has to get on a boat and be shipped. Is that the best way to do it? And as we producers make that decision, then you have to run that by the director and, you know, the set designer. And no, I can't have that built out of, you know, paper mache. I have to have, you know, that whatever. I'm making that up, but you know what it is. And um, because we just officially got a theater in London, that's also taking a lot of my time these days, uh, scheduling the auditions. and um, I'm getting all this marketing material now and the press releases and all those things because it's, you know, it's a new production in a new country. So it's, it's all of that stuff. So these days, a lot of my day is spent on the different companies of Kiki Boots. And if there was one aspect of being a producer that you could spend most of your time on, what's the one part of it that you love the most? The creation, the creative. I am the happiest person, I've said this, hand to God, that when you do the final run-through in the rehearsal room, I always turn, maybe I shouldn't, but I always turn to the director and say, it will never get better than this. It is, it is fabulous. You know, it is this thing that you, it's like watching this child that you conceived and you raised and you did all this thing. It's taking its like first step. And it's actually a little bit, it's a little melancholy because it's taking a step away from you. Up to that point, you are its protective parent. You know, you are nurturing it and making sure, you know, the, the people love it as much as you do and all of those things and hiring those people that will tend to it like you hope, you know, you, you have. And it's suddenly, at that point, it's like the first step away from you because it's not really yours anymore. If the last day in the rehearsal room means you're either going out of town or you're going into tech and uh, there's going to be a lot of costumes and a lot of lights and a new orchestra and all those kinds of things and you sort of, it's not yours anymore. And then, and then the audience comes and they tell you, well, you know, whether they like it or not. So, so that's my favorite part. What Obviously, you've had some pretty big, fat hits, but what happens when that child of yours steps away from the rehearsal hall and falls down? Oh. And, and what happens Which, if not... You know what, Ken? The truth is it usually does because the, the thing that you forget is, as I said, wherever you're going next, there's a whole bunch of new elements that are coming in that you're seeing for the first time. You haven't seen the lights. How could you? You're in a rehearsal. You really haven't seen the costumes. You know, it, it's rehearsal clothes. You haven't heard the orchestra or the orchestrations. You know, how could you? You know, all of those things are coming in for the very, very, very first time. And usually it does stumble because, because it, in my experience anyway, you know, the elements have to learn how to all work together. So, you know, you have the sets that think, oh, I'm the most important. And you have the costumes that think, oh, I'm the most important. And the lights, you know. And, and you just, that's, to me, the, the, a fun but very nerve-wracking part. You have to make those elements all work together. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. You know, we all have had experience of people who have said, oh, my God, it was so great in the room. What happened? Right? Or, or people who see something in a room and go, this will never work. And then, you know, they put it on stage and it's the biggest hit. So it, it does stumble. It does stumble. And when a show of yours doesn't work, how do you deal with that? Because <laughs> yeah. so many of my, yeah. you know, people that read that yeah. when I talk to that want to be produced, they're so afraid of failure. Yeah, it's, it is a pain. It is a pain. That's a really great question. And it's a painful thing. Um, um, and it depends on the depth of the failure. Sometimes you can look at something and go, okay, it didn't work. I will never regret it. It was great. Like, um, uh, times they are changing. The Twyla Tharp piece, Bob Dylan. I mean, it was Bob Dylan, Twyla Tharp, this incredible cast of dancers. 
um, with a story that she tried to create about redemption and, and all these and all these different tough topics, and I it just it didn't work. Um, um, and for for several reasons, I think you know just people were not uh, willing to hear Dylan's music told in that way. I will to the day I die, I will never regret it. It was one of the most exhilarating experiences watching. Um, on the other hand, uh, when Catch Me If You Can didn't work, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I I really it was hard for me to get out of bed for like a week. It was grieving. Again, my psychiatrist husband <laughs> said to me, you know, you are grieving. Somebody died. And it, it, it's not called your mom or your dad. It's called a show, you know, uh, catch me if you can. It was hard. It was hard. And you do, you just have to, you know, you have to pick yourself up. And, you know, one of the things I love best about this community, because, again, I'm being completely honest, I, when it failed, I just thought, oh, my God, is everybody laughing at me? Are people like in the industry like silently chuckling, you know, that, you know, ooh, ooh, you know? And I know that sounds a little like paranoid. And I wasn't saying that anyone was doing it, but that's how it feels, you know, because you're so exposed. It's not a, it's not a small or, you know, silent failure. This thing, you know, everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. You know, awards came out and went, you know, Tony's were, you know, nominations and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, you weren't part of the conversation and, it, one of the things I love about this industry is after I got beyond that, I realized that no one was. And in fact, everybody knew what it felt like. Everyone in this business knows what that feels like. And the reason they don't come running over and hugging you because they know how bad it feels. I mean, we should. I mean, actually, I think now that I'm saying this, the next time I know someone who has that, I am going to go over and give them a big bear hug and say, you know what? I love you anyway. Well, yeah. if it's me, I'll take yeah. it. Okay. I'll definitely yeah. take it. Because it's tough, sure. right? It's tough. It's you, very people hard. don't realize. It, I, at the conference last week, I spoke and I said one of the things that I do when I'm feeling down on yeah. myself after something that doesn't work is I look at the resumes of right. other producers. I want Manny Eisenberg. Right. Right, you know legends like right. David Merrick. You yeah. look at those legends, and they realize they all failed right. multiple times. Absolutely, A- I know. Absolutely, right? Yeah, yes. That's it's tough. It really so is. One of the <clears throat> tricky things I find about being a producer, especially in today's economic climate, is balancing the need to control costs, but of course, yeah. deliver what the artist vision right. is. How do you balance the art versus commerce equation? You know, I, I, at times it's easier than not. It depends on the director because the first thing you have to be able to do is have that conversation. In any, in any way, shape, or form is the question you just asked me. How do you balance that? And, and I think partly, uh, you know, I'm, you know, Jerry Mitchell is one of the best people to have that conversation with because he gets it. You know, and, and, and you can say to him, I have said to him, okay, Jerry, you know, we can have, Dance, I'm making this up, dancing waters on stage, you know, if you want, or, you know, six elephants if you want. But then you have to know that something else is going to have to go, or the show is going to become so expensive to run on a weekly basis that it's just never going to, to work. And more importantly, a savvy investor is going to look at that and say, I'm not, just to start with, I'm not putting an investment in because this show is financially untenable. So, it's that kind of conversation that I, you know, love to have. Now, 
how else can we do the dancing waters? How else can we have the, the effect of 12 elephants on the stage? You know, how can we do that? Um, and so he's really great to have that, you know, be able to, to have that conversation with other directors or designers. It's a little tougher, but I always find at the end of the day, Ken, that if you pose it in the way I just did, if you, you know, here's the budget. You can spend all of it on one piece of scenery and then, you know, have five cents left for the rest of it. But you can't just keep adding on to it because we're just, it's an exercise in futility. The show will not happen because no one's going to just invest in it because it's, you know, these people who are investors are not, you know, unsophisticated or stupid. It, you know, they look at the bottom line. How much does this cost to run? How much does it need a week to break even, let alone recoup? And how many seats do you have? It's not, it's not a, a mystical, you know, or, or a surprising uh, equation. That's a great way to describe it. You, in a way, you're giving them controlled freedom. You're, you're showing them a line that they have to color yeah. within, but let them use whatever colors they want. Abs you know what? It is like parenting. And I'm not a parent, but again, back, I keep saying it. I'm just walking by my husband as a psychiatrist. You know, one of the things that they always say that a child has a tantrum about is because the tantrum is based on because they don't, they can't control their environment. They want to do something and the parents are saying no and they're not, you know, controlling their environment. When you give a child a choice, you're the parent. You know what the choice is. Like if you want him or her to wear a coat, you say you have to wear your coat. Do you want to wear the red coat or the blue coat? Personally, do you really care if it's the red coat? So it is kind of that way in a creative situation. You you are giving them control, but ultimately you're getting what you need from it, um, and and letting them have you know what they need from it. That's the situation where nobody has a tantrum. The tantrum happens when somebody feels like I have no say or control in something you know that I need or want to do. Um, yeah. That's an incredibly yeah. enlightening way to look at that. Yeah, I don't like tantrums. It's usually... <laughs> <laughs> no one does. It's not good. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, you talk a little bit about uh, investors and financially savvy investors, mm -hmm. which I find we're running into more and more these days. Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you deal with investors or raising money, or do you have a style or a strategy, or what, what do well, you do? Well, I think the first thing I do is I'm just a straight shooter. I, I you know, when... I'm, I have investors who have been with me for many, many years, which I'm, I love and I'm grateful for, and we can just have a different kind of conversation. But more and more, um, I'm, I'm very sort of uh, also grateful that, you know, as you produce shows that, that are successful, people kind of find you. And the first thing I do, and I, think, I hope they appreciate, is that I kind of vet them. I make sure that they understand and are willing to, as much as people can be, to lose it all. And, and I also make sure, because I love to sleep at night, that I'm not, they're not investing their life savings or, or, you know, money that was going to send their kid to school or, you know, that they have a medical emergency, you know, they, I always say to them, if you, you know, I'm hoping this never happens, but if you can't afford to lose it all, then you shouldn't do this. Now, no one likes to lose money, but there's degrees of what people can sort of quote unquote afford to lose. Once we get past that, then I just walk them through, uh, you know, what the process is. You know, there's uh, money that, you know, capitalization, and then there's, you know, weekly operating, and, you know, there's net profit, and there's, uh, uh, you know, how all that works, and how they recoup, and what happens when they recoup. And then I always finish by saying this, and I believe this in my heart of hearts. Listen, you can invest in anything you want. You can invest in widgets, you know, and, and or, or own a piece of GE, or whatever it is. 
I promise you this, you may not make as much money if, if you don't want to show. I promise you this, you will never have as much fun. And, and you will never feel as connected to something. There is something visceral, I mean real. When a person has an investment in a show and they sit in the theater or they stand in the back and they actually can say to themselves, I helped create this, I own a piece of this, not just financially but emotionally, you know, I dare you to go to a shareholders meeting at some major corporation and go, ooh, I, you know, I helped create this. I, you know, I own a piece of Apple and, you know, I created it. You know, you don't feel that way. You might be a nice investment. You might get a check. And I'm not saying that that's not worth investing for. But people who invest in theater, I think they love the art. They love that connection. They, and, and they love the fun. And, you know, it is fun. I often say that investing in Broadway is the riskiest investment you'll ever love to make. That's right. You know, that's right. And then, you know, to certain people I say that I, you know, and I say this kind of like tongue-in-cheek because I have made a living in theater for the past 30 years. But, you know, that old adage, you hear it, you can't make theater. You can't make a living, but you can make a killing. You know, I mean, I, I, I have made a living, so I don't know. But it is true. You know, if you have a hit show, it is sort of like, uh, you know, and I think people kind of recognize that. Savvy investors, they recognize that. Well, I think that honest approach to your investors is why they've stayed with you for so many years. I hope so. Yes, I, I do hope so. And and some of them, you know, and, you know, it's not easy. One of the things that I said, you know, when Catch Me uh, sort of didn't work, um, you know, people were shocked at that. Because, again, we were in the rehearsal room. That was the easiest money I ever raised. Margot Lyon and I produced that together, and I, I will never forget, we did a, a tryout in Seattle, um, which got mixed response, you know, and we then went back and they rewrote stuff, and, um, um, and Margot and I looked at each other and we said, you know what, we owe it to ourselves, and we owe it to the creative team to have, you know, another, re we didn't have a theater, we weren't even sure that the rewrites were, were working, you know, I mean, you're, you're in such a vacuum at that point. So, you know, and it was, I'll never forget this, it was right uh, on the cusping edge of like summer, it was like a June Friday afternoon, we were only going to do one, you know, because we, we just, we didn't want to spend a whole lot of money at this, we just wanted to know were we in the right direction, so we thought it was like a small little reading. And uh, we invited, you know, the theater, you know, the usual suspects, and people were hurling checks at me. I am not kidding. By the end of that weekend, I called Margot, and I said, I am, you know, if you can believe this, and I had no reason not to because these people I knew, I had pledges of over $8 million. And Margot herself said, you know what, and I have pledges, you know, close to that. And I said, well, honey, we should just go to Brazil because, you know, let's take the money and Max Bialystok has the right. But, you know, we, we – and so those people saw something in the room that just ignited something in them. And, and some of them were first-time producers and, and – or investors of, you know, producers. And when it failed, I just – one of the heartbreaks that I talked about was the heartbreak of watching them – you know, sort of have this thing that they loved so much sort of not work. Um, what has been great about the Catch Me is it's now, you know, now that it's out of that, you know, sort of glare of Broadway, it's done in a lot of places. I saw a production in Germany. Um, I know high schools are doing it. We had a great uh, U.S. tour that was, you know, a smaller version of it that was successful. So it is great to, that it lives on, but... 
Um, yeah, it's a real hard. benefit of the modern world is yeah. that there's more downstream revenue for yeah, for right, shows than right. ever before because of the globalization. Yes, yeah, right, right, right. Well, let's talk about um, a couple that did work. Yes, and very, very well. Yes. <laughs> One of the look, I was the company manager on Million. It was my first Broadway company management yeah. gig. Actually, I've been an assistant on many. So. And, and listeners, he was great. I mean, I'm <laughs> underlying great. He was great. Well, thank you very much. One of the things that I was so amazed at was how Millie won that Tony Award. And it was one of the first big, I remember, first of all, we, we opened, we didn't get a great New York Times oh, review. Oh, that's putting it mildly. Nina Landon and I were in the audience at the first preview even looking like, how are they going to turn this around? It was rough going at the beginning. We weren't selling lots of tickets. Then we didn't get the good New York Times review. And then I watched one of the most courageous things happen, which is you and Christine Kasky and Mike and your partners at Fox Theatricals say, we're going to go for it. We're going to put some more money into this show. And we're going to go head to head against Urinetown, which was critically lauded. And Um, and Mamma Mia. And Mamma Mia, which was doing great business at this time. And really mount one of the first Tony campaigns that I I witnessed. And and you won you won that yeah. award and look I think Millie deserved it no question no, I, well I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> but at the same time I watched you really lobby and position and advertise accordingly and then you did it again in Kinky Boots yeah. and I will say that one of the reasons I signed on as a producer of Kinky Boots I said Hal's in charge oh and that's a wonderful thing look it was Kinky and Matilda yeah. And Matilda was this 800-pound gorilla that Ben Brantley had already anointed was going to win every single award. All the critics. So everybody. All the critics, yeah. And I said, Hal is in charge, and I'm going to put my money on Hal and the longer shot here because he knows how to win this award and also capture the minds of audiences with the show. But tell me a little bit about how you structure a Tony campaign. Well, Millie, I mean, they're not so different because I had the benefit of Millie when we got to to catch me. First of all, I just want to thank you for noticing that and saying that because, you know, one of the things that producers don't get a lot of is that, you know, acknowledgement that we actually have some creative input. You know, when it when it works, when a show works, we had nothing to do with it. And when it doesn't, it was all our fault. So, you know, we're kind of, that's the kind of bear we cross, we carry, right? So thank you for saying that. When Millie, I'll never forget this, Millie, yes, uh, we weren't selling a lot of tickets, and, but we believed that Kristen and Mike and I, we would stand in the back every night, and it was, you know, just this delightful show with this newcomer Sutton Foster and um, uh, Rob Ashford's new choreography. I mean, it had a lot of stuff to it. And then we got, um, uh, I guess it's who you ask, you think we got a bad review, I think we got decimated. I think we got, I couldn't, to this day, I still say when I, when I read a bad New York Times review, wow, it wasn't as bad as Millie. Um, you know, and he just did, he did not like that show. And, uh, I was, I was, I was stunned. You know, I mean, in my brain, I didn't, I thought we were going to get a good review, if not a rate, and I was stunned. And the next morning, um, again, I, you know, was lying on the couch feeling having a little pity party, and my husband said, get up. You know, I'm sorry this didn't work out the way you thought it would, but now you have a job to do. And you have, you know, a hundred people attached to the show on stage, you know, and, you know, each other, for, and they're counting on you. And you just, there's, there's, 
you can feel sorry for yourself later, but not now. You need to go to that advertising. You know, after you open, you have this ad meeting, right, where everyone's looking at you. And I walked into that ad meeting, and I thought, you know, he's right. I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. You know, and I walked into that ad meeting, and there were investors and people with tears in their eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. And I just, and I just sort of just, I don't know, Ken, it just riled me. And I said, damn it, no, this is a good show. You know, and audiences, the ones that are coming are loving it, and it's everything we wanted to do, and we have all these positive things, great cat, and we are just going to, you know, do this. And, and at the time, it wasn't even so much the Tony Award, because that, that didn't come out for a couple of weeks, but I was not gonna let the show sort of collapse based on this one, you know, review, and we just have to tell people and get them in. You know, get them into the theater, and they will help us be our, our emissaries. And, and so we did. And we, we did. We, we took some larger, those were the days before huge social media. So print ads, you know, meant something and TV commercials, you know, kind of the, that was the focus. And so we, we just went big. If you want to, you know, be a hit, act like a hit. So we took a double truck ad and we took, you know, big, you know, ads. And, and then we got the nominations. The nominations came out and we were right up there. In fact, I think we got one more than you're in town because Gavin, you know, we had a, right? And I thought that's, you know, that's the thing that we needed. And, um, then we started just going to the Tony voters because now they had permission to like us. And that's, you know, a lot of, and that's, you know, it ties right into the Kinky Boots. That's what scared me about the Kinky Boots Matilda one. You know, everyone read those reviews. It just wasn't the Times review that was so great on Matilda. Every single one, one was better than the next. And, you know, we like to call it not a little circle Black Friday because it opened on a Thursday and we, you know, our reviews were, you know, we saw that on Friday. And I did the same thing and I said, guys, you look at that stage and people are having a, a good time. You know, and we weren't even in danger. It wasn't like we got bad reviews on Kinky. It was just that everyone said Matilda's winning the Tony. And and when the nominations came out, and you know what was scary about Kinky Boots was the day before the Tony nomination. Do you remember the drama desks came out? Kinky Boots wasn't. Even, we got like one nomination. I think it was for like you know for best socks or something like we we were just totally ignored i mean totally ignored and i thought did they forget we're performing i mean it was like i'm sorry did somebody not put my name on the ballot you know it was unbelievable uh and then the next day after that the tony noms came out and again we we were one more nomination you know had one more nomination than matilda and it was just that we started to give people commission and i'll the one thing um that I did, because, you know, you have all these pundits, right, whose name write for these different columns and papers, and they were all saying Matilda, 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 and I called one of them, and I said, you know what, with no axe to grind, I'll pay for dinner, you and I, and I, you know, I will either buy the tickets or we'll stand in the back of Matilda and watch the audience reaction, and then we'll stand in the back of Kinky Boots and watch that audience reaction, and you tell me who's having the better time, and, and Tony voters are our people too, you know, they, 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 they react the same way that, you know, the audience does. And that's how we sort of turned it around. You know, you just, you, you just have to let them see what it is you're selling, you know. I mean, you, you, you can't sell garbage rank, as the expression goes. Um, but if you have something you think is a really good show with a heart and a story and maybe music or cast, whatever it is, and you do go toe-to-toe with it, you just say to the Tony voters, just tell me what show you're having a better time at, you know? Um, 
and it, we we prevailed. So it, uh, you know, I, but I thank you for saying that because it's that's great. And so now there are a lot of people out there, people that want to be producers, people that want to uh, work in the theater, that open a playbill like you did and look at Manny yeah. Eisenberg's name or David Merrick's name and say, Hal Luftig, I would love to be just like Hal Luftig. What? The, the, I say call Manny Eisenberg. <laughs> okay. The business has changed a lot in the yes, last 20 yeah, years. How has. would you, what advice would you give to someone that wanting to get in today? What should they study or what should they do? You know, I don't think that, that that has changed much. I think the face of the business has changed, but what a producer does or how you get into it hasn't changed all that much. You know, you have to um, uh, love the business. You have to love the art form. You have to, you know, uh, love it. And, and I, I do quote Manny has, you know, often said this. If you can see yourself doing any other kind of business, you should probably do it. But if you can't, like if you can't see yourself being a like I can't. I could not be in an office, you know, a corporate office. I could not be an attorney. I could not be an accountant. I, I could not see myself. I did. I tried. For two years I tried and I was miserable because this is all I wanted to do. If you have that in you, then, you know, we welcome you. Become part of us. And the way you do it is not much different than I do it. You know, you you... You find, you start out at the bottom and you're someone's assistant or you're someone's, you know, production assistant or office assistant and you learn and you, you read and you, you get knowledge. I mean, when I was at Columbia and I had to do these internships, I was the slowest copier ever because I would read everything. I'd read the contract. I, you know, before I filed it, I would look, you know, it wasn't that I was snooping or it wasn't that I gave anybody that information. I learned, that's how I learned how a contract is written, how a theater contract, how a, you know, a, a, an, act, an equity contract. I learned that's, you know, how, what the business part of the business. If you're a producer, you have to know that. You have to know how the business part of this works, business part of the business works. You know, and I, so I, I strongly recommend, you know, that. And, and then when it comes time to actually produce, start small. Start, you know, see if you can raise, you know, some money and, and, and get into a production. Whether you get billing or not, you know, is, is, you know, that seems to be the template these days. But, but, you know, learn. You know, the more important than the billing, whether this or that, is attach yourself to someone who you think is going to really, you know, let you see the ropes. Go to meetings. Go to, even if you just sit in the back of an ad meeting and zip your lip and never say anything, you're hearing, you're seeing, you're learning. You know, and I think that's how you do it. And, and what's what's next for you? What's on your slate? Uh, well, with the end of uh, Elephant Man is finishing its run um, uh, Saturday night, but we're going to London, which is great. And I have um, trying to revive Children of a Lesser God, the play Tony Winner from 1980 about the uh, the deaf student and her teacher, uh, which Kenny Leon is directing, um, and I'm just loving working with him. Um, that's one of the fun parts when you ask about this career, you know, my, my, this job. I get to meet, like, I sit at lunch and I think, oh my God, I'm talking to Kenny Leon. Oh my God, he's talking to me. I just had a meeting with him two weeks ago right? and I thought the same thing. Right. I was like, this is like the smartest man I know, right? I'm not cool enough to sit down with this I, guy. Right? I'm so glad, right? I'm like, oh my God, yeah. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say? Cause he's going to realize like I'm not, you know, yeah. Um, so I'm doing on that. I'm working on that. And, uh, uh, we have a new musical of Corinna Corinna that we're writing for Audra McDonald, 
which I'm just, never heard of her. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I actually said to her, you know, the 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 reason this this project came about was because she uh, had said once that she's never had a new musical written for her. You know, in the olden days, like Mermaid musicals written for her. And, you know, and I said, oh, that can't be true. Like incredulous. Like, come on, you're Roger McDonald, right? And she kind of looked at me, you know, and tapped her finger and said, uh huh, go ahead, tell me what it is. And I'm thinking, oh, she's wrong. And I'm going, oh, pork, no, no, and I'm, no, oh, carousel, no. And I was like, oh, you know, you're right. <laughs> she's like, thank you. So, uh, uh, we're, we're writing this new musical based on the film Corinna, Corinna, which is great. Uh, it's a great story. Um, and Alan Macon's doing the music, and, and Brian Yorkie's doing the lyrics. So it's a great team, and Lonnie Price is directing, who I love. But I did say to Audrey, you know, because you're in producers, right? You must have your own bucket list, too, right? Sure. She's on my bucket list. So I, I actually, I again, what I love about this job, I just blurted out at dinner one night, you know, Audrey, on opening night of this show, I'm just going to have to lay down and die, because that's, my bucket list is complete. What a, what a, and she said, she just left. She said, Oh, honey, we're going to just have to, you're going to have to get out more. We're going to have to expand that list. <laughs> I thought it was so cool to say so. Okay. Last question, which I ask all of my guests, which is if Audrey McDonald was a fairy princess and could grant you one wish, one uh-huh. wish, and you could change anything about Broadway, the thing that keeps you up at night, the thing that drives you nuts, makes you mad, makes you throw a tantrum. What would be the one thing that you would change about Broadway today? What a great question. My God, I feel like I'm on Barbara Walters special. I feel like I should answer this and start crying. <laughs> Please, we haven't had anyone break down tears yet, but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm going to get Manny Eisenberg I want to be an oak tree, Kent. No. Um, uh, uh, the one, you know what it would be? I can answer. I would want more theaters. It drives me bonkers. You have this piece and it's ready and it's, and you, you got a star and it's good to, and you have to play. Now that you've done all the hard work, which is hard, you know, you got to get all those pieces of the puzzle. Now you got this piece, the theater, and it, you know, there's, there's for every theater, there's like 14 shows and you have to play that sort of theater game and get in line and, uh, you know, and, and it's just, it, and your whole project can fall apart because on certain projects, if you have a star or a director or something that only has a window of a, you know, six month window to get the show up and running and you can't for no other reason, then there's no place to put it. You know, I've often thought like, damn it, we're going to do the show. We're going to play in my living room. But it, I would change that. I would change that because, you know, we just, we don't have the opportunity, I think, to see as much as we should and as much variety as we should because you know, we're all we're all vying for that same piece of real estate. I would agree with you. With a couple of shows on my developmental slate, just waiting. Exa- for I, exactly, it's a big, it's a big. I mean, I had to do it with Avita, and I had you know the first revival ever, and I had you know Ricky Martin and Michael Grandage and 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 all of this stuff, and we couldn't we couldn't get you know theater. Uh, even way back, even with Millie. I mean, here's a if I have a second, a cute Millie story. Michael Mayer and I, uh, our director of Millie, uh, we could not find, we could not get a theater. And I remember we were out, we took a weekend out on Fire Island because um, I didn't know how to tell him we weren't coming in this season. Because this ex is got what I had to say because there was no theater. And the theater that we wanted, the current tenant was not leaving, which, you know, I understand too. But I didn't know how to tell him. It was sort of like, I wasn't sure if I was breaking up or I wasn't telling him I was pregnant. I wasn't sure, like, how to couch the news. 
And so we went out to, on this fire island to, with friends for a weekend. And I remember I was at the, on the dock on the pier. And I figured, it's now and ever. We're about to get on the ferry to go home. That's how chicken I was. And we were about to get on the ferry to go home. And I was hyperventilating. And, and I started having a panic attack. And, you know, that kind of, my heart was beating fast. And Michael came over and he said, oh, my God, are you okay? You look awful. You want to sit down like you're going to faint? And I, I just, I was like, Michael, I figured I just had it. And I just blurted it out. And I said, you know, we don't have this theater. And I, like, basically was like, you know, and he was like, he was consoling me. And I realized after the fact, oh, my God, that it either went well or really badly. But, uh, yeah, so I wish if Archer could grant me that wish, we would have a dozen more houses. Well, I think you all can probably hear why I love Hal, why the industry loves Hal, and why he's such a success. He throws his emotion into everything that he does, including <laughs> telling his director he doesn't have a theater <laughs> and telling Audrey McDonald he's going to die the moment she, <laughs> she performs in his show. Yeah. Hal, thank you so much for doing Ken, this. thank you. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe. We've got some pretty exciting people coming up. Go to www.theproducersperspective.com or just Google Ken Davenport and the blog will come up. You can subscribe there. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.